Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. everybody it's Andy Richter uh, with the three questions and uh, today I get to have fun because I get to talk to a friend of mine because uh, most of these people I can't stand them Ugh, just a bunch <laughs> of tedious fucking Hollywood suck-ups and phonies and finally I get to talk to a real salt of the earth piece of shit Steve Agee a real ham and egger. Yeah. What is that even? I, I don't, you know, ham and egg is a weird one. Does that mean because you eat ham and eggs? I don't know. I had a friend in when I was in high school who I only heard him say it once. Like there was some like, you know, like tr- we were in town and there were some like truck driver types at this diner. And he's like, look at those ham and eggers. He's like, those are some real ham and eggers or something like that. <laughs> And it, it seemed to be the perfect phrase for these guys, even though it, I have no idea what it means. Right, right. Maybe he was just talking about their breakfast. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Speaking of which, I just flashed on remembering it was a regular thing when I was a kid. I grew up in kind of, you know, kind of like a rural town in Illinois. Mm-hmm. But I remember so distinctly going to coffee shops or like, the, like you know, the breakfast restaurant would be sort of a truck stop at the edge of town. Yeah, yeah. And you go there and so many farmers would be eating and smoking at the same time. Like have yeah. their plate of food and have yeah. a cigarette going at the same time. Like you can't, yeah, I, I, can't, I, remember, I can't interrupt this cigarette. I remember going to my, my parents for a brief period of time lived in Blythe, California, which is right on the. California, Oregon, or California, Arizona border. Uh huh. It's like the Colorado River is right there dividing the two states. And um, it's mostly like farming town and, or people who work at the maximum security prison. And oh, neat. I, I would go out and get coffee with my dad at a very similar establishment. And it was just farmers and prison guards smoking and drinking <laughs> coffee. <laughs> Yeah, uh, it's truly amazing. I mean, it's uh, nothing new, but it is truly amazing. And I mean, why we're talking about this, I don't know. But just how much <laughs> cigarette smoke we were around as children. And I mean, everywhere and how shocking it is now. Like, I remember being at my kids at junior high and I was across the, at like something at school with my kids. Mm-hmm. And I was at the far end of the gym from an open door and then even another, like, probably 25 yards, I could see someone had just lit up a cigarette, and I could smell it almost instantly. Yeah. You know? Rem- remember when it used to be okay to smoke on planes? It's, That's insane. It's, there's still places in the world. Like, I remember when we were shooting the movie Semi-Pro, 
me and Kent Alterman, the director, went out for breakfast at this town in Michigan, which was like a shotgun diner. One half, you know, like it was like completely split down the middle by an aisle. And that was the whole place. One side was smoking and one side wasn't. So smoking section was literally arm's reach from you, no matter where you were sitting. And that's in Michigan. I don't know. Maybe it's just (laughs) Michigan's pretty fucking trashy, though. If there is a smoking section in a restaurant, then the whole restaurant is a smoking section. (laughs) There's no like, yeah, this is non-smokers. No, you're we're getting the smoke effect over here, too. It's amazing how recent it was, too, because like I remember when we started doing the late night show on the on the the sixth floor, uh, there was the local news was across the hall and um, you'd see people like running from the the edit bay to the studio with a tape in their hand while smoking a cigarette. You could walk down the halls of, of, of 30 Rock in 1993 smoking a cigarette and it was did you ever okay. have the only person that comes to mind is like Sean Penn on your show and did he smoke on while doing piano? I you know, I can't remember exactly. I think a couple people have uh but I don't remember exactly. Um I've really uh, erased all Conan memories. Uh <laughs> just just as a coping mechanism to move forward with my life. Well, after so many, I mean, you can't remember everything. I, you know, we only did like I think 30 episodes of Sarah's show and like I can see something and be like, I have no memory yeah. of shooting this at all. It's weird. It's really weird to see yourself in some elaborate getup doing ridiculous yeah. shit and go like, no recollection at None. all. Whatever. <laughs> the human mind. Yeah. Well, listen, um, you're from Riverside, California. I don't know if you remember that. I mean, I don't remember being born there, but right. I have, uh, I do have memories that started forming at some point while I was living there. Yeah. 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 Did you, was that where you ended up growing up and going to well, I mean, I know. You're, yeah. Where I was born there and, um, my, my parents worked at, uh, Parkview community hospital, which is in Riverside, which is where I was born. And, um, they, I was adopted. They adopted me and, they adopted me from the hospital that my dad was working at at the time. And my mom says that he had, they were looking to adopt. And my dad was called her one day. He's like, there's a baby here that's up for adoption. And I always thought it was more complicated. I mean, I think it is now, but (laughs) I think in the late sixties and seventies, it was like, Oh yeah, you can have this baby. It also kind of sounds to me like maybe he stole you. I mean, I wouldn't doubt it. My dad like was just a like, scumbag. No, I'm just kidding. He, <laughs> wow. he was awesome. Yeah, yeah. No, it does sound like, you know, hey, honey, uh, come home from work. Surprise, surprise. Look what right I found around, in the break room. Right around Christmas, and my mom had a baby in the stocking on Christmas Day. <laughs> have you, do you, do you, uh, have any contact with your birth parents or any, you know, any desire? I, to it's so funny. Connect? I was telling, I don't know if you know Seth Morris, but I was telling him this story just last night that I kind of accidentally found my biological father when I was 30, like literally through just, I knew my birth parents' names and I knew that they went to school in at Cal State Stanislaus, which is near like Fresno. It's one of the Cal State schools. 
And I knew that they were theater students, which really also explained wow. a lot. And one night I was 30 and one night I was just bored and I decided to go to that Cal State school's website. And I was like, I wonder if they have like a, a link to the drama department. And sure enough, they did. And I clicked on it. And then just for no reason, I emailed the head of the theater department at that school. And I said, hey, you don't know me, but my parents went to school there and uh, it was probably about 1968. And these are their names. And I was wondering if anyone teaching there right now was teaching there in the 60s. And this was a Friday night. And Monday, I got an email from the head of the theater department. And he goes, 1968 was my first year working at this school. I totally knew your parents. I don't know what happened to your biological mother, but I still keep in touch with your biological father. And wow. I forwarded him your email. He didn't ask me, by the way, if that was okay. <laughs> he was just like, I sent your email to your biological father. And I just remember going, oh, shit, that's out there now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then like a, a week or two later, he wrote me back in this really amazing long email about, you know, who he was, who who he is. <laughs> and, and, you know, that I have like ha half brother and a couple half sisters and. Yeah, he's a really cool dude. He still is a really cool dude. Is he still in California or? No, he was never in California. He lives in Eugene, Oregon. Oh, okay. And my half-brother, Jordan, lives in uh, um, Oakland. Uh -huh. And then the two half-sisters also live in Oregon. And do you, I mean, you obviously have met them and, mm -hmm. and they're in contact with them and everything. I see kosher. Jordan actually quite often, you know, whenever I'm in San Francisco, either doing stand up or for sketch fest, which is every January, I, I, you know, get lunch or dinner with him or something. Nice. And yeah. When he's a musician and whenever he's playing down here, I, you know, I try and make it a point to go see him. And did your uh, biological father end up doing something creative? Yeah, it's like, you want to hear something crazy? I guess. I mean, I'm here. <laughs> You're like, no. <laughs> um, so in his email, he was saying, you know, I went to school. And um, after I graduated, he said he moved to Ashland, Oregon, which is home of the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. Really small town. Uh, very quaint. It's almost more like a village, but it, it's really a really cool town at the base of the mountains. And it's really the first town you come to if you drive into Oregon from California. And um, the crazy thing is that when I was about 27, I was taking classes at the Groundlings and I had like a really long wait between classes, like a year wait. And so did my girlfriend. And we were just like, let's not just sit in LA for a year. Let's you know, we're young. Let's go somewhere for a year. Let's get in the car and just go somewhere. And so we got in my truck and just started driving north. And we ended up in Ashland, Oregon. And we ended up living there for a year. Wow. For no fucking reason. Wow. And so I thought that was pretty bizarre that, you know, my biological father had just ended up in Ashland. And yeah, probably when he was about the same age as I was when I randomly, for yeah. no reason, just moved to Ashland. He wasn't there when you were there, though. No, he was probably there in, you know, the early yeah. to mid-70s. Right, right. Wow. Yeah. Um, 
Uh, oh, I forgot. I had a question. I slipped my mind. Um, do do you have any, do you, <laughs> that's my favorite color. <laughs> do you, um, so are, are there any other siblings? Did your folks adopt anybody, any other kids? Yeah. My or? older brother, Greg is about eight years older than me. And my, uh, younger sister, Beth is a year younger than me. And all adopted. Uh huh. Oh, wow. Yeah. All right. Um, and, now, what kind of what was your household like? Are you are you you're in the middle then, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I my brother being eight years older than me, um, that's a stretch. Yeah, and he was also adopted from my dad's previous marriage. So, oh, I see. He would spend a lot of time with his mother, that his adoptive mother. He would kind of divide his time between my dad and his his mom. So. I don't have a lot of memories of Greg when we were younger. Right. Because he was back and forth. And then, you know, when he was like 18, he went to college. And so, you know, he was gone a lot. But it was, you know, my dad was a doctor. He was an anesthesiologist. And so he was working a lot. He was gone a lot. I was, you know, one of those kids that kind of, rode his bike around the neighborhood with his weirdo neighbor friends until like <laughs> nine o'clock at night. And yeah. Until the rule was always when the street lights come on, come home. Um, but I never would. And so it was always, you know, we'd be riding bikes or something and I could hear my mom yelling from the front. <laughs> yeah. 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 Which is totally crazy. That doesn't happen anymore. It was, yeah. I could hear my mom yelling and I could hear my my best friend's mom next yeah. door yelling. You would just hear women yelling all over the neighborhood. Right, right. Just that is pretty hilarious. Well, now too every every kid's got a phone so it's like it doesn't matter, you know, you just text him, where are yeah, you? It was, you know? you know, it was back in a time where everyone kind of just rode their bikes to the mall yeah, or to the, yeah. played BB guns out in the orange groves. And- we did. I mean, I, we had behind our house was like woods and we'd go play yeah. in the woods. And like when it was dinner time, uh, my grandmother would ring a bell, like Amazing. stand, like it was a fucking ranch or something. Like a triangle we were, bell. No, like it, like a little ding, 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 you know, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. like a little brass bell. And, uh, yeah. And then we'd hear that and be like, all right, time to eat, you know? Yeah. Um, but now we were, I was, a, uh, terrified of getting in trouble, but I feel like you probably weren't. I was terrified. Yes. My, my sister was a lot of trouble. My brother was a, a troublemaker. And so I had that guilty sense of I got to be the good one, even though by the time I got to high school, I was probably the worst one of all of them. But like I had this, you know, feeling of I got to make my parents happy because I can tell they're losing their fucking minds. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But yeah, I was very conscious about, you know, my parents' stress levels. Yeah. Why do you think, why do you think that all the kids were sort of, you know, rabble rousers and shit stirrers? I don't know, but I can't, you know, I'm 52. I do not have kids. I don't envision having kids. So I can't imagine having three kids or in your case, two kids or like just the stress. I remember one time I was probably like, eight or nine and I was 
upstairs in our house and I looked out in the backyard and I saw my dad walking down, walking around in the backyard. I think, I think he was raking the, the, you know, leaves in the backyard. And I remember seeing him talking to himself. <laughs> like, it, you know, he's a hundred like yards grumbling. away yeah. and I can just see him raking and talking. You know, there were no Bluetooth. There's right, no phone. Right. Like he was talking to himself and it scared the shit out of me because <laughs> his father had had dementia. Yeah. And uh, so I remember a period when our my grandpa was staying at our house and he, you know, had Alzheimer's and was like, again, thought he had to go out and get the horses in the backyard. It was fucking scary for a little yeah, kid. Yeah. And so I remember seeing my dad talking to himself in the backyard and I was like, Oh my God. Oh my God. My dad's got dementia. I didn't know that word when I was a little kid. Right, but I was right. like, my dad is going crazy. Senile. Yeah. Yeah. My dad's unhappy and crazy. And I was very hyper aware of that. Now at 52, I'm like, Oh, my dad was just fucking trying to keep himself from blowing a gasket. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I talk to myself all the time. Yeah. And also too, there is a difference like in just terms of like the, the, the parenting theory has changed so much because it used to be, you got to teach a kid to submit like, cause that's what life is. Life is submitting. And there actually is some truth to that. Like mm -hmm. I, you know, like when you have a kid, especially like it is a life skill to because, you know, and it's like, I, it's a capitalist world. So it's like you go somewhere and you, you get paid to do labor of whatever kind. And part of that is having somebody that you just think is a fucking asshole tell you what to do and you just got to do it because yeah. that's the structure of this particular thing. Yeah. And I mean, you could, I mean, you could raise your kid to be like a, you know, a Marxist reactionary or a revolutionary <laughs> or something. But, you know, odds are that your kid is not going to be that. So it's like, you got to teach them like, yeah, sometimes you got to eat shit, which is yeah. just a, it's not a fun thing to teach your kid, but take it your is blows kind of, and fucking deal yeah, with it. Like, yeah. yeah. Like I know that guy's an asshole, but if you're like, you know, it's just like, you got to do your time. You got to keep your head down. You got to, you know, and then you get to a place where you can yeah. sort of like do what you want, you know? Well, believe um, me, I, I'm very aware of that. You know, I, I spent two years, I got kicked out of high school and I had to, you know, my parents ended up like so frustrated that they sent me to military school, which was the big threat in all the movies in the eighties. Yeah. Was, yeah. If, Bill and Ted, we're going to send you to military school if you don't straighten up. I was the kid that actually got sent to military school. So talk about eating shit and doing what you're told for two years. Wow. What What did you, what was so bad? What were you doing that was so bad that you needed oh, this to go to prison, like, basic? Drinking like, I really, I, when I was a freshman in high school, two seniors took me out and got me drunk. And I... It was a, <laughs> it was a game changer for me. I was like, cause I was a shy kid, you know, all through yeah. elementary and junior high. And I was afraid to talk to girls. And I remember just, we went to a liquor store. We paid a bum to buy us three bottles of Boone's farm strawberry. And, uh, we went Yum. up to, uh, you know, a, a development area where they were building tract housing and, you know, 
there were still no houses yet. And so we just right. went to an empty cul-de-sac and like turned on Van Halen and sat on my friend's tailgate and like just chug big bottles of Boone's Farm. And I just remember being like, am I going to throw up? Is this going to make me throw up? Am I? And they're like, dude, just shut up and drink it. Yeah. <laughs> and I, at one point, I just remember laughing so much. And then we went and watched, uh, I think it was Beverly Hills Cop or 48 Hours, one of those movies. Yeah. And laughing so much. And then from then on out, it was every party I would go to, I would get drunk and I would be completely the life of the party and talk to girls and make out with girls. And so booze was like, you know, it was a magic pill for me. And so I just did it constantly to the point where I started doing it in the morning on the way to school. I would get oh, a wow. big gulp at seven 11 and pour half a bottle of Southern comfort into a thing of Coke, like a pint of Southern comfort. And like wow. by second period, I'd be completely buzzed and, um, you know, every now and then my parents would look in my car and find an empty bottle of <laughs> an empty fifth of Jack Daniels, which is disturbing to find in a car. Yeah, yeah. Not beer cans, like heavy, hard alcohol. Southern Comfort yeah, was my. Especially with it to a teenager. Now, you know, it's like one 16. thing to find it in a 35 year old, but teenagers are already a menace. You know what I mean? On, on in, in a car. Yeah. And I, um, you know. Oddly got kicked out of a school for trashing a homeroom, which I actually didn't do. Two friends of mine did it and they did it in the morning before an assembly. And I walked, they're like, dude, you got to go look at homeroom. And I walked in and they had just like destroyed it. I don't know mm -hmm. why they did it. And as I was walking out of homeroom, a teacher saw me. They, I didn't, they didn't say anything at the time. And then my next year of school, when I was registering, they're like, you have to have a meeting with the principal. And I went with my mom and he's like, before we let Steve back in school, you should know that he trashed a room. And I was like, what are you talking about? I, what? And then he's like the homeroom before. And I was like, oh yeah. I go, that, that wasn't me. He's like, who was it? And I was like, I can't tell you. I'm not going to tell you, but it wasn't me. And he's like, well, you have to apologize to the board, the school board before we let you back. And I was like, I didn't do it. And my mom, God bless her, was like, uh, if my fucking son said he didn't do it, he didn't do it. Right. And I don't want him going to your fucking school if you're going to accuse him of shit he didn't do. The sad part of that was they then sent me to military school. Yeah. Because they had friends who sent their son there and he got straight A's. And I was getting like F's and D's. And, um, so was this the me, first school you got kicked out of, or did you get kicked out of more before that? There was my freshman year. There was a school. That, are these all to, public schools? No, they're private, like Christian schools. Oh, okay. But they're co-ed. And my sophomore year, halfway through the year, for some reason, I don't know why, I decided I wanted to go to a different school. And I ended up switching it. At, you know, halfway through the school year and going to this other school. And oddly, all my friends who were also drinking the next semester or the, yeah, the next semester got all got busted for drinking. They all got suspended. They all had to go to like alcohol programs for teens. And I am managed to avoid it. So this was my second school, first school I got kicked out of. And then, um, 
They sent me all the way across the country to right outside of Philadelphia to the school where they filmed that movie Taps. Oh, wow. Which is also the basis of Pensy Prep in Catcher in the Rye. It's the school J.D. Salinger went to. Oh, wow. Um, now, d- did did you miss part of a school year or did, did it happen like she had that meeting with the principal and then it was like, OK, you're going. And then three days later, you're. No, this was so I. Went to the same school for my first year, the, the half the second my sophomore year, I switched schools. So I went to schools my sophomore year over the summer. I had to have this meeting with the principal okay. to be let back into school. Oh, so it, okay. it was before my junior I understand. year. I understand. By the way, they sent me to this military school and we go, I, my mom and I go there and they're showing us around and I have to take some tests and stuff. And I remember the, the Dean saying to my mom, like, well, some of his grades are bad and his credits don't, you know, transfer. transfer. So he's going to have to do a, a second junior or Something it, it took me five years to go through high school, uh-huh. and looking back on it, I'm like, I think that was bullshit, and they were just trying to get more money out of my parents. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, that was two very interesting years, really bizarre years. Like, cause, tell me about it. I mean, because I can't even fathom what that would be like. You I know, tell- I talk a good game about eating shit, but man, in military school, I would think I just curl up in a ball in the corner. Well, I I also, by the way, I tell everybody with kids, I'm like, never send your kid to military school. Why? Yeah. Because you are literally sending them to a school that is the all stars of fuck ups. Yeah. Like I was nothing when I got to that school with like hardcore, like screw ups and like people who would go on to kill their parents and like, whoa, like really scared. (laughs) people a few there were there were awesome people there too but like right people were not there were very few people who were there because i want to go to military school yeah, it was like yeah. you know and it was and they're also then taking those people and training them to fight with weapons <laughs> we did have to shoot like we had to yeah. shoot like just 22s but we had to shoot guns and yeah. march and i had to you know polish my shoes and my brass belt buckles and had have daily inspections. And it was insane. You're marching everywhere. It is insane. You're getting up at five 30 in the morning and going up to the, you know, the, the physical education field and running a couple miles and doing calisthenics and then going back and cleaning the dorm till it's spotless for an inspection and then you go eat and then you go to school yeah and everyone is just sitting in class nodding off because they're exhausted all yeah <laughs> love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places well working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like t-mobile We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. 
Hi, I'm comedian Eliza Schlesinger, and I've got my podcast, Ask Eliza Anything, where you can submit me your burning life questions, and I will give you real advice. Go to Denver, be young, get you a black lab named Bailey, and she'll be like, well, then just have it anyway. And then you'll be like, it tastes like blood. Please don't. We moved. We moved and my husband died. I'm not here. I died too. You know, when people's like, happy holidays from the Thompsons. What they're really saying is, look how great we look. We're all still alive. And we're all wearing blue jeans. You're looking at us. Listen to Ask Eliza Anything wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Phoebe Judge, host of the podcast, This Is Love. Stories about love and all of the surprising forms it can take. Like a man who finds a baby on a subway platform. A woman who spends most of her time alone until a fox starts coming around. And in one of my favorite episodes, we meet a man who forgot his wife and had to get to know her and fall in love all over again. Listen to new episodes of This Is Love wherever you get your podcasts. Can't you tell my love's a growing? Wow. And do, I mean, do you voice your, your like, desperateness to get out of there to your parents? I mean, or did you just try yes. to suck it up and, you know? Because I remember when they told me, because I remember after this whole thing at the the second school not wanting me to come back, I remember at some point going up to my parents, you know, schools were starting up really soon. And I go, we got to figure out where I'm going to school. And they're like, we already know we've avoided telling you to avoid conflict, but you're going to military school. And Jeez. I threw a fit. I was like, are you out of your fucking minds? I was like, I'm going to be a runaway. I'm going to fucking, I go, I'm not going to military. School. And they're just like, try it out. If it doesn't work and you're, really hate it you can come home they just said that to appease me yeah because i've seen letters that i wrote to my parents from military school going all right i've tried it this place fucking sucks let me come home <laughs> like really depressing letters that were just like this is like prison yeah and by the way you know i was drinking a bunch but once i got to military school it was like Oh, let's try acid. Let's try speed. Let's try cocaine. Oh, wow. let's, I was like 17 at this point. And, you know, it was really hard in a dorm to hide bottles of alcohol because we had daily inspections. Yeah. You know, you couldn't hide a fifth of vodka somewhere, but yeah. Or you, the smell of it on your breath or on your clothes. Yeah. Yeah. But you could hide a sheet of acid, you know, under your mattress, like it yeah, was in a book. It, yeah, it was really easy to hide drugs, you know, and yeah. we did, and we did a lot of drugs. While you're running and marching and going to class or afterwards? Well, yeah, sometimes we were doing it because we had to go run, you know, speed oh, wow. was very popular. It was like sometimes you just do a bump of speed to go fucking run two miles at 530 in the morning. <laughs> Oh my God. Well, what happened? I mean, how do you get out of there? I mean, is there, well, oh, first of all, is you there graduate. Any, is, oh, really? You, so yeah. that was, oh, so you don't, okay. But because you said five years, but you only did two years there and then you graduated. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and, and to, my timeline's off. I did like three years of regular high school. Okay. And then it was two years at the military school. How, what do you, in the summer when you come back to California in between those two years? How do you not go, uh, I'm, you know, like chain yourself to a radiator or something? Well, by the end of the first year, you're like, that you place sucks. 
but I've got some really good friends that make it okay. I'm still going to be very vocal about not wanting to go back, but also I have more important things to do, like hang out and party with my friends before I get sent back. So I see you spend your summer out, you know, 18 hours with your friends, like, you know, well, surfing did, and climbing. did you have good communication with your folks or was avoidance kind of like a key to a lot of what you would do? Because it sounds like you'd come home. Everybody knows the situation, but nobody talks about it. Yes. Like it, they know you're dissatisfied. You know, they want you to go back, but you just kind of. Yeah, my parents were, you know, pretty hardcore Christian conservative mm. and nobody really talked about feelings. Yeah. Until, you know, probably like the last 15, 20 years, for some yeah. reason, when you become an adult and you leave the house and then all of a sudden every phone call is en- ends with, I love you, or, you yeah. know, it's, it was very nice. But like, as a kid, like it was not, my parents were great. I really did hit the lottery, but, you know, feelings, I, I don't know if it was a seventies or eighties thing, but like, yeah. People just didn't really talk. Yeah. Well, so you get out of there. Well, and I guess, well, the, is the friends the only good thing you take out of there? That was another thought across. Well, I did end up getting like straight B's and some oh. A's. I, I really, because at night there's nothing to do but study. You literally yeah. every night have to sit for two hours at your desk in your room. You can't even get up. You and they have monitors walking down the hall, like the fucking gulag, and they're just like, <laughs> "You can't get up to take a leak." You can, but you have to ask permission. I see. Um, and so at some point, you're just like, "Well, I fucking might as well read this fucking chapter in my history." <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and you retain it, and you're like, "Oh my god, I remember this from two nights ago." <laughs> <laughs> this shit works. <laughs> like I just had to read. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> well, where do you go to college then? So after, or are you kind of like, do you feel like you don't want to go to college? Cause you just went through all this, the, the intensest school there is. I never wanted to go to college. It was never my plan. Yeah. But also all my friends. And when I say all my friends, I mean, my friends from back home, I don't mean my military school friends, but all my friends, well, and my military school friends were going to college, you know? And yeah. My parents all went to college and everyone like, and so I was just like, I guess I have to go to college. And, um, I'd been offered a scholarship to play basketball. I was really good at basketball and I had been given an offer to play at this school in New York or New York or Pennsylvania at Westchester university. And, um, I never told my parents about it being offered the scholarship as a, a fuck you to like, I'm not going to fucking do this shit anymore. I want to go back home. And, and so <laughs> I just went to this, this private, another private Christian college. I mean, I grew up in a Christian household in a Christian community. We went to Christian schools. And so all my friends were also in the same boat and everyone just kind of went from these Christian private academies to this Christian private school, which was Loma Linda University, which is a very famous medical school. Mm. Like 
Loma Linda University, a lot of their students go on to Loma Linda University Medical Center, which is where they did the first baboon heart transplant. Wow. And they do amazing uh You think they do that, st- that stuff for humans? <laughs> I mean, what? <laughs> they Sounds do. like uh, a veterinary hospital. Yeah, it's all, you know, horses and monkeys. And, <laughs> all right. But, so anyway, I'm sorry. That was, a, you know. But so... But this college also has like a business program. And I also grew up around the ocean a lot and scuba diving and surfing. And the only thing I could think I wanted to do was maybe I'll be a marine biologist. Mm-hmm. And um, so I and they didn't have a marine biology program, but I figured I could get all my biology classes out of the way at this school and then transfer to like Cal Scripps. State Long Beach or Scripps yeah. or something. And um, first semester just failed. All my, I, I could not grasp biology at all. And it's crazy because they start you out as a freshman. You're still dumb. And like they start you out with the smallest level of biology and chemistry and like cellular and molecular and atoms and like mitochondria. And you're just like, what the fuck does this have to do with fish? (laughs) And like, I was like, no, I'm, I can't do this. I'm not. And so, you know, halfway through the freshman year, I develop an ulcer and I'm just like, I I can't do this. And then, so I finished the year undecided. And then my best friend, Sam, I remember going, just be an art major. He's like, He's like, they have an art department up there. And he's like, he's like, I've seen you doodle and draw shit. He's like, be a major. And so I was like, yeah, I'll be an art major. And so I switched and my parents were like, oh, fuck. Okay. <laughs> well, at least he's still in college. And yeah, I was like, maybe I can be a graphic designer or something. I never wanted to do any of this shit. Honestly, since I was a little kid, I wanted to be an actor and a stand-up comedian. Um. I remember as a kid, my idol was uh, John Ritter. I wanted to be John Ritter. Wow. And I knew that from the time I was about 10 years old. And the first album I bought at 11 years old with my own money, I went down to the mall and I bought George Carlin a place for my stuff. I was 11. I didn't understand half of his jokes, but for some reason I was like, this guy's funny and I want to do this, but... I had no friends. I didn't know anyone in that world and I didn't think it was possible. So I would just buy it and consume it and just soak it up. And um, at some point while I was in college, I joined a band with my roommate. And also I remember my mom. You've been playing guitar all along, right? No, I started when I was like 18, 17 or 18. And, um, I think my mom knew what was up because I remember a, she told me about an open mic night. She's like, you should do this. You know, it was at this bar in fucking Riverside and yeah. I think called Carlos O'Brien's or something. And, (laughs) and I did stand up and I, and she also sent me a clipping out of the local newspaper that the local community theater was, holding auditions for a Christmas carol. Wow. And I was like, okay. I was really excited. And I went and I auditioned and I got the part of Jacob Marley. Wow. And and like, I 
fucking loved it from the time I first did it and stand up too. Yeah. And I still didn't think it was possible for me to do it. Cause you, but, that's why you didn't become a theater major. You became an art major. Cause it's still like, Oh, that can't happen. You know? Yeah. And they didn't have a theater, oh. you know, major at our school. It was all just graphic arts. And so I have a degree in painting. Wow. Two, two dimensional art degree and like a bachelor's degree. I haven't painted anything since the day I graduated <laughs> or since like a week before I graduated. Not even houses. Oh, I, yes, I have painted houses. Yes, that, I did a lot of house painting. Yes, yes. Well, so then what? Do you, then what? I mean, well, then I eventually graduate, and yeah, I also got very into rock climbing in college. I took a class, um, because there was a girl I had a crush on, and she was taking this rock climbing class, and so I signed up and just took to it like like I was meant to do it. Yeah. So much so that like the second year I was helping the teacher teach the class. Uh huh. And so I rock climbed all through college. I even took a year off and went to a college up in the hills above Napa Valley just so I could rock climb. Wow. Like none of my credits transferred, but also while I was there, I met a girl who was a photography major and we ended up dating for like six years. We moved to LA together. We went to New York together. Um, in 1993, the art department that I was going to um, gave out a scholarship um, to go study abroad somewhere. And so my girlfriend and I went to New York. I just wanted to go to New York. I'd never been. And um, so I went and I studied I did painting and stuff at the art students league, which is on like West 57th or something. Mm -hmm. And um, I just loved it. And I, you know, I would take like one class every other day there. And the rest of the time I would just walk around New York. I would go to clubs and I would go to museums and like fucking love it. And I believe I was there. I was there when Letterman had his last show at NBC and you guys were announced as yeah. taking his place. I don't think I was still there when you started. I think, did you guys start in 94? We No, we started in 93. And, uh, okay, so I was still. September of 93. Okay, so I was still there when you guys yeah. started. Um, But also, we weren't making any money. And so we blew through our money in like six months and yeah. <laughs> was out of there. Yeah, yeah. Um but I had to come back anyway. And so when I eventually graduated college with my weird degree, I didn't know what to do. Yeah. They don't prepare you for this shit. It's like, here's your degree. Bye. Right. Right. And we'll ask you like once a well, year to don't donate money to us <laughs> on, uh, you know, like to just to take their side for a second, you weren't exactly directed. You know what I mean? You didn't have like a lot. It sounds like you didn't have a lot of self-direction. No, you know, beyond kind of experiential kind of things. So, yeah. I mean, you know, I think I, colleges do kind of expect you, <laughs> you to have figure some it out. idea what you're going to do with yourself. <laughs> yeah. And the crazy thing is I got to college and I just more options started opening. So yeah. it was just like, Ooh, maybe I paint or I really like playing in a band. And so when I graduated, I was already playing in a band who, I joined this band. It was a cover band my roommate was in and their bass player broke his arm. 
And it was like that movie, that thing you do, but instead of a drummer, it was the bass player broke his arm and I had a bass in my roommate. It was like, you want to come play with us? We just do covers at our friends, you know, studio. And, and I went and we started playing and literally by the end of the first rehearsal, just dicking around, we had, we had written like four songs, like punk songs, but like. And I was so excited by that, that I just started calling clubs. I was like, you guys, we have to play in clubs. What are we doing? And they're like, really? And I'm like, we just wrote four songs and we have like eight covers. We can play at a club. And I started calling out of like LA Weekly and the local newspapers. And the first person to return my call was this guy. I think his name was Mike Gian Greco. He used to book clubs in LA. And he booked us to play the fucking whiskey. That was wow. our first gig was the Whiskey A Go-Go. What was the was name me- of the band? <laughs> the name of the band was The Grazers. Uh-huh. And um, we played, and it was awesome. And so I knew when I graduated, I needed to be in L.A. Yeah. Even if the band wasn't going to lo- relocate, I needed to be there. So I, in order to keep from having to get a job, I enrolled at the school here in L.A. called the Musicians Institute. And um, it's like just a year program. Yeah, like a trade school. Yeah. And I went because I wanted to learn to read music and I wanted to learn proper technique, which I learned. Yeah. And, um, you know, that ended. The band ended. You know, our singer went on to be to a seminary to become a pastor and (laughs) the guitar player became a nurse. And I classic punk, classic punk story. And I think the drummer is now either a lawyer or an archaeologist. (laughs) (laughs) And I was the only one who I kind of followed through. And, um, you know, my the day I graduated from the music school, my girlfriend broke up with me and moved back to Sacramento and. I was stuck here and I just, but I fucking stayed. I loved LA and I loved every bit of music. And I met a, met a girl and started dating her. She was taking classes at the groundlings. And I went to a show and was like, it was the, the light bulb. I was like, this is it. Yeah. I need to be doing this. And I had already known about, you know, the groundlings and, you know, recruiting for SNL. And I was like, this is how I get into TV. I was like, this is a much better entrance into comedy for me. I love sketch comedy. Yeah. And um, and you'd so, been doing stand-up at that point, yes? Yeah, a little bit, yeah. A little and bit, so yeah, yeah. I started taking classes at the Groundlings, and it was a life-changing decision for me. Yeah. Because I started taking classes. And, you know, you're in classes. You went to, was it Second City or I went I. to Improv Olympic, yeah, Improv Olympic. Yeah, and you're there as just a student or a performer, and you're performing with people who later go on to be, like, huge stars Mm -hmm. and friends. And you start relationships with these people that lead to working with these people. And I was in classes with Maya Rudolph, and I was there with Will Forte and, you know, all these people who were, you know, at the time were just like... Just like you. Working at Starbucks and just trying to do sketch comedy. And um, eventually, you know, I got voted out of the the groundlings. (laughs) What? Voted out? Oh, yeah. The teacher's vote or something? Well, after my last class, it was like they have to vote on whether or not to let you into the Sunday company, which is kind of like the minor league. Yeah. 
performing troupe and it was just like no no i you know i don't think we need another white guy (laughs) yeah yeah you know maya made it in which uh i was a no-brainer not right you not because she's black or jewish but because she's fucking incredible you know and there were people that i was in classes with that you could just tell like melissa mccarthy you're like she's gonna be like you could tell yeah that person's gonna make it that person's gonna make it I was crushed because I had spent every day of my life at the Groundlings Theater working there for classes, performing, doing, you know, workshops, and all my friends were there. And I literally, once I was voted out, was like, I literally don't know what to do now. My plans are just crushed. And I ended up doing a play that a friend was in, um, my friend Jim Giordano. Um, was doing a play with this guy Dave Juskow, who's a New York comedian who you you may know. He's like I, he was. Yeah, I know the name. Yeah, he was like best friends with Sarah Silverman. Okay, and he was doing this play about an '80s rock band who is now, you know, has-beens and they're trying to make a comeback. So he needed someone who could play guitar because somebody dropped out of this play. My friend Jim goes, you should hire my friend Steve. He can play guitar. He's been at the Groundlings. He's very funny. And so with like two days notice, I had to learn this script. And I did this. We did this play down on Theater Row on Santa Monica Boulevard. And uh, opening night, Sarah Silverman came to the show. And afterwards, she came up to me. And she's like, that was really funny, man. She's like, you're really funny. And you want to smoke a joint? And I was like, yeah. And we sat outside and smoked a joint. And from that point on, Sarah and I were like, best friends like hung out constantly and you know it formed uh you know a creative and just emotional you know friendship and uh you know she's still one of my best friends to this day and she helped me i i don't know where i would be right now without sarah because not only did she hire me on her show which was my first really big acting gig but also before that, she introduced me to Jimmy Kimmel when she was dating him, and I got a job working on his show, which eventually ended up to me with me being a writer. And also, Sarah's the one who's like, "You need to go see a shrink. You should be on medication." Because at one point, I started having panic attacks so bad that I didn't leave my house for like three months. I became agoraphobic, oh and I just called her one night. Cause I just tried to go to a seven 11 to get food in the middle of the night. Cause it's the only time I would leave my house. I was so scared and I go to the seven 11 and I'm sitting in the parking lot and I'm looking through the windows and there's just one person in there. And I couldn't go in because there was one person in there. And I just called Sarah sobbing. And I was like, I, I think I'm losing my mind. And she's like, Oh, you can get your mind back. She's like, go see my shrink. Here's their number. And Two days later, I'm seeing her shrink and, you know, they get me on Lexapro. Yeah. And within two weeks, I was like back performing and like, wow, game changer. I, I owe Sarah more than I could ever repair. Yeah. And you think that just was it her help that made you get to, you know, I mean, I know she set up your appointment with the shrink, but the actual leaving of the apartment, which is the, you know, the, the oh, hurdle that was you had to jump over. But yeah, it w- but it, do you think that her having set you up with the guy helped you be brave enough or did you just push through it because you knew you had to do something? I knew I had to do it, but I knew 
that was the light at the end of the tunnel was yeah. even if I hadn't gone on medication, I knew I needed yeah. talk therapy. I needed to talk to somebody. I was right. not talking to anybody. I, my brain was a mess from all the, what do I do? You know, the, yeah. the, all the artistic shit that we go through, like, you know, I, I, I have to, you know, up until I, I just, you know, um, incorporated, but up until then it was like, I signed like fucking 30 pieces of paperwork for acting every year. And so every year I have, I'm juggling 20 fucking W2s and it's, yeah. you know, my parents had one, you know, right, they, right. the taxes were easy for me. It's just like, what am I doing with my life? <laughs> yeah. My life? Yeah. What form did the fear take when you were trapped in? I mean, what do you, was, the, was it just a, like a raw fear or was there something specific that was haunting you? It was, I don't remember when it started. Oh, no, I actually, I do remember my very first panic attack was in military school. I remember, I remember the day, like it, like it was yesterday. I was walking down the hallway in the dorm and two of my friends were wrestling and they both fell to the ground and one of them hit his head on the en- edge of a, the doorway, which is cinder block. Mm-hmm. And it's that lime green military sure. wax floors. And I just remember seeing his eyes roll back in his head and just bright red blood on this like green yeah. floor. And that was the moment I was like, oh, I could fucking die any moment. And that's looking back at the moment. I wasn't thinking I could die at any moment, but I think my brain was figuring that out. And so I went to dinner that night and all of a sudden I'm eating and I couldn't swallow my food. Like I literally, it wasn't an involuntary reaction anymore. It was literally just, I can't remember how to swallow. And I know I shouldn't have to remember how to swallow. Yeah. And so I'd spit my food out and like, I couldn't eat. And then the next day it was fine. And that's how my panic attacks first manifested themselves Mm. as I couldn't swallow. And it was always in stressful situation. If I had to fly, I would have a panic attack and I couldn't swallow on the plane. I would carry tissue and spit into it on a flight. The whole flight. If I went to a restaurant, it was, I would have to sit near an exit if I was going to be able to eat same at a movie theater. And I dealt with this for like 10 years before I saw a shrink. And she was like, that's a form of a panic attack. And also it would also manifest itself sometimes in trouble breathing, like not trouble, but I would get this sense that I wasn't getting enough air in my ox in my, in my lungs, which was really weird because I was taking in tons of air, but it just felt like nothing was going in. Hmm. And then when I was working at Jimmy's show, I started having proper panic attacks where just for some reason, I felt like I was going to die. And wherever I was, I had to get out of that room. Yeah. And usually as soon as I would leave whatever spot I was in, they would go away. Yeah. And that would happen like once every few months. And then they started happening once a day and then like 10 times a day to like, Jeez. Clearly, I can't go out anywhere because yeah. I'm going to have a panic attack. Um. So, but I mean, the and the Lexpro just kind of did it, and you know, oh my I mean, god, yeah. I don't know. I mean, part of me is like, was that a, 
you know, placebo effect. And part of me is like, I don't care. Yeah. Who gives a shit? Yeah. I was back performing improv and stand up and shit. And it was because of the Lexapro. Yeah. Wow. You know? Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. I'm Phoebe Judge, host of the podcast This Is Love. Stories about love and all of the surprising forms it can take. Like a man who finds a baby on a subway platform. A woman who spends most of her time alone until a fox starts coming around. And in one of my favorite episodes, we meet a man who forgot his wife and had to get to know her and fall in love all over again. Listen to new episodes of This Is Love wherever you get your podcasts. Can't you tell my love's a growing? Well, uh, and then tell me about Sarah's program, because right? it was called the program, Sarah Silverman program. Um, yeah. Does she just, does she, do you have to read for uh, execs no. or does she just say? No, does, she wrote yeah. that part for me and and Brian and as well. Saying, Brian yeah. who played my boyfriend and eventual husband on the show. She wrote that and um, I hadn't done anything other than a few commercials at this point in my life. But I made a lot of dumb short films borrowing my friend's video cameras. And it was usually shit where I'm walking around the house with my balls hanging out of my pants. Some dumb shit. <laughs> or I go to the bathroom to take a shit. And it's five minutes, literally five minutes of me just uh, squeezing. And then I get up and there's a fucking can of soup, like a hard <laughs> can of soup. In the dumb shit like that. And so Sarah tells Comedy Central... Uh, Brian Pusain and Steve Agee have to play these parts. They're like, yeah, Brian, okay, we don't know who Steve is. No, we want to hire somebody else. And she's like, no, I wrote this for Steve. It's going to be Steve. And they're like, well, can we see anything you got tape on done? him? Yeah. And so Sarah's like, put all that shit on a DVD and send it to me, and I'll give it to Comedy Central. I was like, holy shit, okay. And they saw it, and they were like, Ugh, all right okay this, <laughs> this guy's a psychopath <laughs> clearly but we're gonna hire him and they hired me and sarah this was the second incarnation of her her show she had originally written a show for herself um that she wrote with larry uh larry charles mm -hmm. um who's very funny people would know as you know producer of you know seinfeld and writer yeah. on seinfeld and director of the Borat movie, like a right. brilliant, funny, very guy. funny. Yeah. Established guy. Awesome dude. So she wrote a show before the Sarah Silverman program that also had a part for me in it. And it was like Sarah and I believe Paul Rudd and, um, Kevin Corrigan and myself. And, uh, it was really funny. And, she had originally pitched that one to HBO and it didn't go. And yeah. so then the, this thing happened. Oh, wow. And we did, um, you know, four years of the show and it was yeah. awesome. It's a, it's such a funny show. It's yeah. so great. Um, and when that winds down, does it get canceled? I mean, does Sarah decide she doesn't want to do it anymore? Or? 
it kind of, you know, what's funny is after the second season, they would like wait really long periods of time before seasons, between seasons. And after the second season, which did really well, there was just this holding pattern where we didn't know if we had a show or not. And Sarah demanded a meeting and she went into Comedy Central and she's like, look, I don't care if you cancel us or not, but just cancel us. I need to know yeah. if we have a show or not. She goes, I don't want to be treated like Amy Sedaris. Yeah. Because Strangers with Candy was never canceled. Right. It just stop. They just yeah. stop. Yeah. She's like, I don't want to be treated like Amy Sedaris. And they go, who? They literally, <sighs> Comedy wow. Central. Wow. Said who to quite possibly the funniest woman on the planet. Yeah. Whose show was incredible. And that's and just because it was a new crop of dum-dums? I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. And they're just like, and she's like, Amy Sedaris, she had a show on this sh channel for what, three or four seasons. And they're yeah. like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, right. And sure. They, and so they're like, yeah, yeah, we'll give you a third season. So we did it thinking. This is it. This is probably going to be it. They never canceled us until after we wrapped. So we didn't get to do a proper ending, but we all kind of figured it was the third season was the last season. Yeah. And, and um, uh, and what, I mean, what's that like? I mean, I'm, I know what it's I've for been, me as like, that's a lot. You yeah, know? That's my first acting gig. And I was just like, kind of crushed, yeah. but also I had managers at the time who were like, Hey man, this is good. That was Comedy Central. You're making no money. We're going to get you on a network show. People know who you are now. This is a good thing. Cut to two years later, I haven't worked, you know, and I'm just like, hey, man, where is that good part of me getting fired from Sarah's show? And Yeah. And then I just became a character actor where yeah. I just guest starred on shows for I'm still doing that. And it's yeah, like yeah. there was a point like a couple years ago where I was a recurring character on, I think like four or five shows that were running. Like, yeah, you could turn on a TV and see me almost every night of the week on you're the worst or new girl or uh, American housewife or just tons of shows that I was on at the same and like not a guest star, but like recurring like character. Right. And, and I just couldn't get over that peak to like my own, you know, to being back as a regular until yeah. this past year. And that's too, that kind of existence is, I mean, it can be, well, you know, you can be making some money and you can, you know, you can kind of be mm -hmm. relaxed for a minute and, but it all can get yanked out from under you and you can have periods where nothing fucking <laughs> happens. As soon as one of those shows gets canceled, you're like, Oh shit. Well, there goes some of that money. And yeah. And, um, yeah, it's a crazy, unstable existence. Yeah. Um, and it's not like, you know, I have friends in the 90s who bought houses from doing a guest star on Friends or right. doing a commercial. Yeah. They would be able to buy a fucking house. Get the house. down payment, yeah. And now it's like, no, you're, you'll cover your rent. Yeah. For maybe two months if you do a guest star yeah, <laughs> on yeah. a show. Yeah. You have to be constantly working. Yeah, no, you could it's yeah, you could make if you got on a big national commercial, it could be a couple hundred grand, you know? Yeah. Uh yeah. and that just doesn't it doesn't exist anymore. And you know, there's part of me and it's the same thing in television, you like 
you know, if you wrote on Frasier for five minutes, you could get a $2 million, you know, holding deal for a couple of three years. Yes. And then those went away and people were like, oh, no, that went away. And it was kind of like, well, yeah, because that was fucked up. That yeah. was like that was too much. That was, yes. you know, the pendulum had swung way too far yeah. in the direction of giving everybody a bunch yeah. of money to do nothing, yes. you know, except yeah. have meetings. So totally. Now, um, again, you are friends with James Gunn, right? How do you know James? So I, I've known James now for probably about 12 or 13 years. My yeah. friend, Shawnee Smith, who is a, an actor who people would probably know from like Becker or in the 80s, she was, you know, when she was a teenager doing movies like Summer School or, you know, with Mark Harmon and The Blob. Mm-hmm. And Shawnee's always worked. And... Uh, my God, summer school. My, or you my, would know her from the people, horror fans would know her from the Saw movies. She's in all the Saw movies. Oh, She's okay. like the no, main I, person. I just, that summer school, because my daughter, who's 15, went through a period a couple of years ago, and it was really fun of wanting to see all the shitty movies that I watched in as a teenager. Not because I watched them. She's just like, I want to watch 80s and 90s shitty teen movies. And that was one of them that we. I've seen that movie like four times. Yeah. Just Shawnee played the pregnant. Shawnee was the pregnant girl the pregnant in the girl. summer okay. school class. And so Shawnee, because of all this, the, the horror movies that she had done, she co-hosted a show with James Gunn on, I think VH1 called scream Queens mm-hmm. where they were going to find the next, like Jamie Lee Curtis or Shawnee Smith to do some horror movies. Right. And one night Shawnee called me and she's like, Hey, I'm supposed to go to this like dinner party thing at James Gunn's brother's house. Uh, you know, meet up with James. She's like, do you want to go with me? I don't, I'm not going to know anybody there. So I want to bring somebody. I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll go. Okay. And so we go and like, I just immediately hit it off with James. It was like yeah. when I met Sarah, it was just like, we were goofing around and joking the whole night. And then he goes, Hey man, we do this every Sunday night. If you want to come back, come back any Sunday. And I went back every Sunday. (laughs) I loved everybody at those, like all James's friends, everybody there. I fucking love. And I'm still super tight with to these days. Shawnee, Shawnee never went back. I kept going back and just formed this awesome, like friendship with James. And James is one of those people, you know, like Sandler who likes to work with the same people and likes to work with his friends. Yeah. Um, They're long days. They're long days. So you might as well surround yourself with people that you enjoy being around. Why wouldn't you do that? People are always like giving Sandler shit for like, why are you always hiring Spade or Schneider or Nick Swartz? And I'm like, because he fucking likes having them around and he likes working with them. (laughs) And I'm like, I get it 100%. And if I was in a position of power, I would do the same exact thing. I've asked people. If you opened a hot dog stand and you had friends that could come and work at your hot dog stand, would you go, no, 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 that they haven't earned it, you know, like I and I need to see some fresh faces at my hot dog stand. No, you just hire the people because then you know them, you trust them, you like being around them. I've been in several on a few occasions, been in movies or television shows where the intention was to hire a friend. Mm-hmm. And then for whatever reason, studio notes or whatever, the guys in charge, the people in charge weren't able 
to do that. They had to hire someone yeah. because of some other thing. Yeah. Always, at least three times, I've had conversations where somebody's like, that was a terrible mistake. I yeah. should have just hired my friend because it would have been better. My experience would have been better and the product would have been better. That's you know? also why a lot of directors will meet with people like, yeah. as, opposed to just, as opposed to just an audition where they look at the tape and are like, yeah, that was a good performance. They want to meet with people because they're like, I want to make sure this isn't a sociopath I'm yeah, dealing yeah, with. Yeah. And yeah, so I've worked with James now on like three or four of his movies. And, and now one of his, you know, we just did a TV show together up in Vancouver for seven months. Okay. Uh, so, which TV yeah. show is that? So we did. We did uh, Suicide Squad with 2019 the last, yeah. to early 2020. We shot the Suicide Squad. And then last fall, like late summer, early fall, Warner Brothers asked James, they said, if you could do, they were really happy with the movie, the way it was shaping up. And so they said, if you could do a movie or if you could do a spinoff TV series with one of these characters, who would it be? And he said, I, I want to do it with John Cena. And so we did, uh, we spun off Peacemaker, which is John's character from the Suicide Squad. Um, eight episodes for uh, HBO Max. They'll be out in January. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's, it's really good. I mean, if you like, if anyone listening likes Suicide Squad, they'll love Peacemaker. It's really funny. Oh, good. That's great. Yeah. And what, and do you play the shark? Cause didn't you play the shark guy? You're like the shark yeah. guy, right? <laughs> the yeah. shark guy. Well, I don't yeah, know. I, <laughs> I, I had two jobs on that movie. I did the motion capture for King shark, which was really the majority of my job. Like I yeah. think, I think at least going into it, I had more days of work than anyone on the movie, including Margot. Like it was like, wow. I think it was a 90 day shoot and I worked like 80 days Wow. And um, it was all, you know, running around with a weird shark head frame on my head. head and uh, Were you in leotards or was that? Yeah, 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 yeah. Leotards or if I was in the water, I had a wetsuit and wow. it was crazy. It was a lot of fun. And then I played this guy, John Economist, who's an actual character, for, right. character from the comic books. He's the warden of Bell Rev Prison, but he... In this movie, I'm kind of like one of Viola Davis's right hand goons, right? An agent, yeah. An, an Which agent is what guy. I'm doing in the TV show. Yeah, I'm that character. Um, well, that's really good. yeah, because I know uh, Sean Gunn, his brother, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. did had a recurring role on my first show, and so I've known them. And I which known is James. Which, which show? From Andy Richard controls the universe. Sean did stuff on that show. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, John no, Gunn. I'm saying I, I didn't, I don't remember. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, he did. He played, he and uh, there's another actor whose name is skipping my mind and I feel terrible, but. Andy Richter. No, no, no. <laughs> he, I can't, I can't remember this other guy's name. Charlie Finn, maybe I want to say, but. Um, Pat Finn? No, no, it wasn't okay. Pat Finn, but they played like frat boy, okay. a pair of frat boys that I tried to impress. And okay. uh, so I had known, um. Oh, wow. I knew Sean and I, you know, and I, I don't, I don't, you know, I met James, but I, you know, yeah. we mostly are like online pals. Yeah. So. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's amazing. But, well, that's, I mean, it's pretty cool that you got to do all this shit with your friends, you know, I mean. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I've been living out of a suitcase for two years because of partially COVID the, the last year, but like, you know, I went to shoot Suicide Squad and 
Atlanta and Panama and my, I was not able to sublet my apartment. And so I had to give it up and put all my shit in storage thinking mm. I'll come back in February and I'll get a new place. And I got back in February and COVID just struck and no one was showing apartments or houses. And right. so I had to hide out in a friend's cabin in Joshua tree for a few wow. months. And then Ricky Lindholm let me stay at a, a place that she was fixing up in Culver city for a few months. And then the TV show happened and I relocated to uh, Vancouver for seven months, but yeah. now I'm finally back with a place in LA and I'm stoked. Was COVID tough on you because of your anxiety issues? Dude, COVID was tough on me for a multitude of reasons. A, yes, my hypochondria, but also B, when I got back, the very end of Suicide Squad while we were shooting, my mom was diagnosed with leukemia. So I get back. That's another reason why I wasn't looking for a place to live. I was spending all my time at the hospital visiting with my mom as she was going through uh, chemo. And then, you know... She was doing pretty good. And so they had to get her out of the hospital. And so they put her in like, we wanted her to go back home, but she wasn't strong enough yet because of the chemo and everything. So they put her in this like kind of a nursing home faci care facility to do physical therapy and get her strength back. Mm -hmm. but she was Rehab, still, on, yeah. still on chemo though. And yeah. so I got back and like every day was just hanging out with her for like a month or two, about a month. And then uh, COVID happened and they stopped allowing visitors. And um, that was when everything went downhill with my mom. She, I, I don't know if it's the fact that no, but no family was around anymore, but I would talk to her on the phone and she started losing it from the chemo. There's a thing called chemo brain where you get really forgetful and stuff and confused and, I would call her every day because I couldn't go visit her. And I, I was like, I'm so sorry. I can't be there. And just the crushing part was her always saying, when are you going to come visit? And I would have to say, there's, there's a pandemic mom. They aren't allowing people in the hospital. I will be there as soon as it's over. Oh yeah. 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 yeah I, f I forgot. Okay. Two minutes later, when are you coming to visit? Like she couldn't remember, which crushed me. And so she died like uh, just a couple months after the shutdown started and she was just alone and like having to deal with that alone and in isolation was the worst experience of my life. And, you know, not being able to be with family or anybody, just like sitting in a house in the desert, sweating my ass off going, wow, my mom is dead. I have no parents now. Um, I literally don't know what to do, you know? And yeah. it was luckily, you know, I have amazing friends who helped talk me through it. But then also one of my friends who was helping me get through it on, you know, FaceTime and Marco Polo, which is a video app was Lynn Shelton. And Lynn was a really good friend of mine. And so for two months, it was almost daily, like video chatting with her, you know, and which was keeping my sanity. And then just out of nowhere, Lynn collapsed and died. You know, she was dating Mark. Mm -hmm. She was living with Mark Maron. I remember, the time. Yeah, she, she's a film director. Great film director. Um, I met yeah. her doing uh, episodes of New Girl. She was a direct sitcom director as well. Mm -hmm. 
And she just collapsed while she was staying at Mark's and they took her to the hospital. Mark put her in an, in an ambulance and she was off to the hospital. And that was the last he saw her. Like she died that night. Mm. And uh, it was, it took a while for them to figure out what it was, but it was the exact same leukemia that killed my mom. Like she was wow. undiagnosed. And um, so that fucked me up on a whole other level. And then throughout the year, just other friends dying right and left. And it was just like, I was a fucking mess, you know? And yeah. um, it wasn't until I was back up in Vancouver a year later working on this TV show and not able to hang out with any of the cast because fucking for some reason, Canada fucked up and didn't get vaccines. And so I go up to Canada thinking, so long, suckers. I'm going to Canada. I'll probably be vaccinated in March. Fucking cut to all my friends in L.A. are now vaccinated and hanging out. And I'm like sitting in a fucking apartment in downtown Vancouver, just hoping I have work that day because like I'm not hanging out with anybody. Right. And um, eventually I just called my therapist, my old therapist who I hadn't seen in like 10 years. And I was like, uh, I don't know if you remember me. And she's like, oh, yeah, I, rem <laughs> I remember you. <laughs> and so that was kind of a life life changing moment, like getting back into therapy and. It's Are you maintaining like, that today still? What's that? Are you maintaining that? Uh, yeah, it's today? been a yeah. little more off and on since I we finished shooting and I was moving back and working on another movie at the same time since I've been back. So It's but, hard to schedule, yeah. But yeah, it, it's on the schedule and um, very necessary. You know, I yeah. can't recommend therapy to people enough. I know. I My thing is I can't imagine not needing it like what a yeah. talk about hitting the lottery like not not like going to like i can't imagine going to therapy and going like there i found absolutely no use for this this was a waste of my time i just yeah. feel like who is that person and i mean i've met some naturally happy people motherfuckers <laughs> and uh <laughs> and i uh you know they do exist but it's just i can't therapy just to me seems like well what's i mean who doesn't need to talk a little bit about their problems to figure them out a little bit? I mean, the first time I went to therapy was after I kicked out of the groundlings. A, yeah. a girl I was dating was like, you're driving me crazy. You should talk to a therapist, not me. Yeah. I mean, talk to me too. Like it's right, a relationship right, right. and that's what you do. But she's like, but you need professional help. And I was like, I don't think I do. I go, yeah. I, I just got kicked out of a <laughs> I feel comedy great. school. Yeah. I go, I had great parents and yeah. And so I, I did it to appease my girlfriend at the time. And, um, I remember going into this therapy session going, oh, fuck here. Uh, this is going to be fucking yeah, yeah. useless. And literally the woman comes in and she's like, so where are you from? And I'm like talking. She's, she's like, what are your parents like? And I started fucking bawling. Yeah. And the whole fucking session, I couldn't stop crying. And I remember it ending way too early and I going saying, can I do another hour? Can I just pay you for it? And she's like, no, that's not how it works. She's like, come back next week. And I was like, fuck next week. Yeah. She's like, yeah. And I was like, okay. And I, I left that session just going, that was the greatest feeling of my life. I go, that yeah. was awesome. And I can't wait to go back. And it's been wow. that way ever since. Yeah. Yeah.
Now, when you went up to Canada, mm-hmm. you know, after all this trauma and all and these deaths, uh, yeah. was and you went back to work, and I imagine that was kind of part of your healing, right? Yeah, it was it, great to actually physically be around people. But also, was that it? Was it? Was it the, any in any way the work, or was it just the sort of you know, to use a pastor word, fellowship? Was it just the company, just to being around people? It was both. It was, and I had before that started doing episodes of Superstore again here in LA, which was awesome. But also just going, yeah, it was the preoccupation with work to take my mind off the shitty things in my life and just being able to focus on work and not think about that was amazing but also being around friends like on Superstore I was friends with all those guys Mark McKinney and Ben Feldman and Colton Dunn and all of them like mm-hmm. it was so good to j- granted the first time you go into work during the pandemic it's terrifying yeah you know although now I don't I feel safer on a set than I feel anywhere else because yeah. of the amount of testing they do mm-hmm. and everyone is wearing masks so like even in the rare occasion that COVID manages to get to the set, it doesn't spread because everyone's wearing masks. So right. I feel and you're working really, in different zones and it gets squashed right away. Yeah. Yes. They'll be like, there was a, a COVID positive case. It was in the art department. So it never made it this far. You're fine. We can keep yeah. working. Um, but you know, the first time you're on set and the AD says, all right, take your masks off. It's just like, Oh yeah. God. Um, but yeah, it was being around friends. In fact, I remember in January, you know, we're shooting like the first or, ac- first or second episode of Peacemaker and it's a dinner scene and it's, we're in a restaurant and I hadn't been in a restaurant in almost a year. Yeah. And we go in and it's me and Danielle Brooks from Orange is the New Black and uh, my friend Jen Holland, who's on the show, and this guy Chakwudi Awuji, who's this amazing actor who everyone's going to know. Yeah. And uh, John Cena. And we're all in this booth. And they would cut and they'd be like, okay, you guys can go back to, you know, your trailer or whatever while we set up the cameras, and you know, for coverage. Move, and we yeah. were, we're just like, no, we'll wait here. Like, it was the closest thing to a dinner. Like, we were right. sitting at a table. So it was like. We didn't want to leave, so we yeah. all just stayed at the fucking table. Yeah, that's nice. It was awesome. Well, what's uh, what's your future plans? Uh, I mean, if you if you get the right answer, that you can have this bank loan. Um, <laughs> well, my future plans are to keep working. Now that I, I'm renting a house, now this is my first house. Oh wow! Didn't buy it because my accountant was like, "You don't want to buy a house right now." It's insulting yeah, yeah. The, the prices are insulting yes so he's like if you want rent a house so i have a year lease here and you know i don't know if the bubble's ever gonna burst because it seems like they've always been expensive here in la yeah um but i like this house and so i hope i can keep working to afford to keep living in this house and um you know eventually if we get a sequel to Suicide Squad and a second season of Peacemaker, maybe I can actually buy a house. So yeah, any writing or anything? Or I'm writing stand up again. I haven't performed because of the pandemic in a year, so I'm writing yeah. again, and that's exciting. And you know, 
I, I was going to say, I, I got to a point like a year or two ago where I was thinking about houses more than I was thinking about girls. I was just like, I would go on Zillow and Redfin more than I would go on Pornhub. It was just like, <laughs> I was like, houses were my new porn, man. <laughs> Still are, man. I just yeah, yeah. want to own a house. Yeah. Well, what do you, what do you think, um, what do you want people to take away from your story? That I'm fucking probably as crazy as I <laughs> No, I mean, I listen, listen, I openly, I love going to the mental illness aspect of my life and, you know, having to deal with that. Because I, I just want anybody out there who's dealing with a shit who doesn't realize they're having panic attacks or have, you know, depression to like go, oh my God, that's exactly what I have. Because. Right. When I was in high school and college, there wasn't the internet. I couldn't search symptoms. I was like, I'm going crazy or I'm dying. Yeah. And it wasn't until I came to LA and started hanging out with other actors and comedians that they're like, I would say like, God, I was in this restaurant last night and I like, just my heart started racing and I started sweating and I had to leave. And I think I'm dying. And my friend be like, the fuck are you talking about that's a panic attack i have them all the time and i was like what and then i started just talking i would talk openly to anybody going do you ever get like panic attacks yeah duh dude all the time and it was the best i hate that my friends have depression and panic attacks but also i love it because it makes me not feel crazy yeah And, and it's just very reassuring to know that like this is oddly normal like Mm -hmm. it's out there and there are solutions you know you don't always get as lucky finding a pill the first time you know sometimes you gotta fucking try a lot of shit before you find the answer but yeah and sometimes they stop working i mean i've had that over the all the years that i've been on medication or the weird you know weird side effects just pop up and you, you don't know, you think like it's something else and you're like, you change the medication. Like, Oh no, it was just all of a sudden the you know. Yeah. But the, the, I mean, the first thing to do is realize that it's not taboo and that it's just talking about it feels fucking great. Yeah. It's crazy to me that people are shy, you know, like people yeah. will talk about their sore back or their sore neck or, you know, <laughs> or even, you know, yeah. Chronic, you know, condition, diabetes, people, uh, yeah. there's no shame in saying like, I'm a diabetic, but yeah, people no. still feel shame about saying I have panic attacks. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, my, my brain chemistry beta- betrays my happiness on a regular basis, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. Cause it just, it's, you know, the, in the little experience, you know, when I, because it's something that I also too, I talk about and, mm-hmm. um, like I remember I did a, a guy named John Moe um, did a, a podcast. He's a, he used to have an NPR show out in Minneapolis that I did a couple of times. And he did a show that was sponsored by, I think AARP or something like that, <laughs> or like a, or, you know, pharmaceutical company or something. But it, I mean, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't selling anything. It was just talking to funny people about their depression. I think it's called the, hilarious world of depression or something like that. Yeah. And I did an episode of that and I received as much like, Oh yeah. Feedback about that 
podcast than I have, and like in person, like in the Warner Brothers commissary. Early one morning, I was going to the gym. Went after my workout. I went to the gym or went to the commissary to just get a cup of coffee. Mm-hmm. And this guy that works at the studio, soft spoken, you know, probably 15, 20 years younger than me, comes up to me and tells me how hearing me say that, like, basically saved his life. Which I was yeah. like, I'm, you know, I want to say like, well, I don't know if I sit, you know. But he said like, no, you, you talking about this made me feel like. I, I all this shit I could never say to my parents. I could never say to my family. I felt like I got to do something about this because I don't want to be like this anymore. Yeah. And I was like, you know, I'm I'm really loath to be like, you know, I've, I, there's people out there that are aching, and I just want to let them know. You know, I mean, it's, <laughs> you sound like such a pretentious fuck, but it's kind of true. You know, you're in the public eye for another reason, and then you say, hey, you know what? My brain's fucked up. You know, and I and I work hard at, at, at getting in front of that. And well, I'll, you know, I'll tell you, you know, when you came and did the podcast that I used to do with Busy Phillips, yeah, and we talked all about depression. That got some of the the biggest, you know, like feedback of, from people going, "Oh my god, I had no idea. This is amazing. I'm going to go to therapy." Or I'm, you know, it was amazing the amount of people that found it helpful. And yeah, by the way, there's another. Um, podcast it's hosted by a comedian named paul gilmartin i don't know if it's still going but it was a long-running podcast i was called, on it called yeah. the mental illness yeah. happy hour yeah that's another one people should maybe check out it's, yeah yeah it's just him talking to comedians and actors about mental illness and yeah, it's yeah. awesome yeah because it's like you know, it's like you said you, you you get in with all these funny people that you relate to and then you find out like oh yeah they're all broken in the same way too everyone's Me. like yeah what are you taking <laughs> yeah 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 lexapro well yeah well steve i love you very much and i, I love you too to man i'm you. so glad i got to do this podcast finally and yeah I, I can't wait to see you in person yeah we will and um and thanks for you know spilling your guts uh, Anytime. For my, I have a lot for, of guts to spill. <laughs> just for content for me. <laughs> Save your guts for me. Okay, I could do that. All right. All right. And thank all of you out there for listening. Uh, we will be back next week. Bye-bye. Bye bye. I've got a big, big love for you. The Three Questions with Andy Richter is a Team Coco and Earwolf production. It is produced by Lane Gerbig, engineered by Marina Pice, and talent produced by Galitza Hayek. The associate producer is Jen Samples, supervising producer Aaron Blair, and executive producers Adam Sachs and Jeff Ross at Team Coco, and Colin Anderson and Cody Fisher at Earwolf. Make sure to rate and review The Three Questions with Andy Richter on Apple Podcasts. Can't you tell my love's a-growing? This has been a Team Coco production in association with Earwolf. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com.